collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Welcome everyone to another episode of Collective Power. I'm excited to have as a guest today, Lisa Jo Epstein. Hello, Lisa Jo. Hello, Rita. Welcome to the show. And it's also a pleasure to have you because you're actually a listener, which I'm like thrilled to have a listener. So Lisa Jo, you know, my first question is always tell us a story about yourself that gives us an idea of First, who you are, a little bit more the way I know you. Mm -hmm. And then since the theme of this month is white supremacy in the body, like why you're passionate about this topic, why you care. So there are so many stories and I'm gonna tell one from a long time ago because I think it brings together some of the themes that revolve around why I'm passionate about working on white supremacy. So, Many years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I put my cat in a bag, got on a plane and moved to Paris, France, where I went in search of training that I, my heart was saying I needed and I could not find it in the United States. And so one of the places where I studied was the Center for the Theater of the Oppressed. Um, so I had an opportunity to spend three years studying with Augusto Boal and the, the French and Brazilian crew of Jokers. Jokers is the name for facilitator. So it was my very first workshop and it was a really big workshop, a lot of people. So one of the core elements of Theater of the Oppressed is that participants create fiction out of lived experiences so as to strategize new ways of interacting with other people, as well as new ways of reseeing our own insides, right? So like the work is about using theater to dynamize our knowledge, both of who we are on inside and to align it with our values on the outside. So coming from the United States as a, a young white feminist theater maker, I was obsessed with racism. There was an invitation to share different issues of injustice and oppression that people wanted to discuss and investigate. And so I said racism. All these other groups formed and um, there were several people left over who were like, okay, we'll work on racism with you. <laughs> like it wasn't their first choice. Like it was my only choice. 
from your visual face, it's like, you know, they were so kind that they wanted to yes. explore, right? Like they totally did it for you, right? Yes, exactly. That, I don't yeah. know why. Okay. So I told a story about myself, right? Because it's stories of who we are and what we've lived. And I talked about being a white woman working for a Black Arts Alliance. The story is about the workshop. So what ends up happening, you know, like I thought that in telling my story that that would create an opening for the French members to share their story. <laughs> in, yeah, well, that didn't so, happen so much. And suddenly I found myself creating a scene that was made from images because the first step when we do this work is rather than using after, after we've told the stories and we've synthesized our ideas about what is the sort of arc of the, and the characters and the conflicts, we make images with our body. So I found myself being made into an image that represented the United States. And mm. everybody else in the scene represented France. Wow. So it stays frozen. And then he brings the images alive. We did this thing where somebody made me into an image of how they experienced the character I was playing, the role I was playing. They shaped me like a bull. Oh, wow. And when the clap happened and the image came alive, I basically was like a bull in a china shop, stomping all around pushing people out of the way, you know, taking up space. It felt awful. I was like, wait, I wanted to talk about France and racism, right? I didn't want to talk about global capitalism and the United States being a Bigfoot, but that's what they wanted. And they were the majority in the group and I was in the minority. I chose this story as the step into talking about white supremacy and my particular obsession with working on it is because this was a workshop in which I became, and I was young, so it was really clear to me that there's no such thing as giving up my white North American privilege. And there's no giving up being outside the system. So here I was playing a bull, representing the United States, and I was like, I don't know anything about capitalism, do I? Sure as hell do, right? Like, and there was not an opportunity actually to critically reflect on what I was feeling in my body in that activity. So I had to silently accept the discomfort that emerged through this embodiment of white American privilege. Accepting discomfort, and we talk about this, you and I do, is at the root of our learning. So like I'm constantly stepping into discomfort and unlearning. Really that whole story deepened my own analysis of racism, of capitalism. Like Bowal used to say, oppression is a situation of monologue and not dialogue. And what did this activity point to in terms of our understanding of where we are in known power structures, right? Like how does our personal experience and feelings fit into the larger picture? So I was there for three years. The workshop, you know, nourished my knowledge of this modality. It also informed me that as a white North American female feminist middle-class doctor of theater, I 
need people with whom to parse through what the heck is going on here, right? What's both inside and outside, right? So I'm just curious, so were you doing the bull in the China? Oh, yeah. in the desert? You were doing it, right? Yes. So I'm curious, do you remember what it felt like in your body at that time? Yes. Somebody in the group sculpted me into an image. Because like we think about ourselves in these workshops as, um, I call it intelligent clay, where we can put our bodies in, in shapes that we might not imagine. How in this case, someone else was shaping your body. So you yes. were like this kind of fake puppet. They sculpted me. So like they put yeah. my hand here and they put my hand here yeah. and they bent yeah. me over like wow. I was an animal. And then yeah. they release and go back to their whatever image they were in. Yeah. So what did that feel like for you in your body? It felt awful. I was tense. My throat was tight. I was moving around with like this sense of immense girth and disgusted with myself and embarrassed. Mm. It didn't help. And I'm saying this in your show. I had a crush on somebody. Who was oh no! And most of the people in the workshop were more seasoned facilitators of this work. And so at the time I didn't necessarily understand how theater of the oppressed, this practice that I do, is a practice of working with somatic disequilibrium. At the time, I just felt like crap. I like I feel, I'm sure my face was flushed and I was sweating and my heart was beating and I lost voice because it was all silent. Yeah. And I was just like, so like I can look back on it now and say all those white guys and a few women who were marching are probably carrying a lot of what I just explained to you. They haven't taken a TO workshop. They haven't taken compassionate leadership and conflict transformation, right? And yeah. how does it feel now? How does it feel tell now? this story? I yeah. feel I have walked leagues since then and have gained a sense of comfort and acknowledgement that I couldn't at the time. Now I feel like, oh yeah, that is a product of how Lisa Joe had been socialized by all of the institutions that I had moved through my whole life. Like, don't talk about it. Don't talk about the fact. I think back then I felt very separate and isolated in my experience. My body was present, but my head was spinning, right? I was like yeah. this puzzle piece, but I didn't see where the puzzle piece fit in. I felt like that I was in the wrong puzzle, like yeah. that I didn't belong there, right? right? So you asked, how do I feel now? I feel like, yeah, someone should have had me lean into that discomfort and help me be one with the puzzle because to be like my true self. This is it. Even though yeah. I would never consciously call myself that, what I carried into that room was that white capitalist privilege to yeah. do whatever I wanted. What I was then was like this separate puzzle piece. And now I'm more like relatively at peace with the piece. <laughs> I think 
that understand, like, and then the next step is really seeing that we are in the puzzle. Our unique selves are like the currency of connection <laughs> to our uniqueness that make up the puzzle. And what I hear you saying is that part of what all these years of work have done for you is it released the shame. You know, sometimes you're the piece, sometimes you connect with the puzzle, sometimes you don't connect with the puzzle. And, but there's what's gone is, is the shame about connecting or not connecting. That, that's what I hear in, in the ease with which you're talking about it now. And I think that's what's so important about somatic practices, because I think there's the pain that we internalize and then there's the judgment we have about the pain that we internalize. And sometimes it's that judgment that creates the shame and the guilt and the anger and all that, that actually makes it heavier. The judgment comes from white supremacy. Exactly. Because if um, you're not living up to the product, yeah. then yeah. there's the shame and the blame, right? But we're here yeah. to heal the pain. And there's another piece that I wanted to point out that's just kind of really alive from what you shared is that oftentimes storytelling is used as a way to transcend power. But if we're not careful, we can use it in a way that brings power back in from, it's like you toss it out the door and it comes back through the window, right? So it's like, well, you were novice at the time. Like I know that so many years have gone by and I know that you don't do this because I've seen, I've been in one of your workshops, right? And I know how careful you are to not project your own stories onto others and actually listen for what's there. But I think the, like what you did at the time is something that facilitators often do. Like, I'm going to tell you a story for you to see something about yourself. And that's actually control and it's white supremacy. And it's the way oftentimes we can bring it back in as facilitators. And we have to be careful because we want to control the outcome. And actually what's fascinating about storytelling is that you tell the same story to 10 different people and 10 different people may walk away with something completely different. The story doesn't always teach in the same way. It connects to where people are and their personal experiences are. And that's what's so beautiful about story. And that's why I think oral cultures are a lot more humane because they leave space for that personal interpretation. I'm curious about storytelling as a way to transcend power because I've never really thought about it that way. At the time, I did not feel like the activity was facilitated in a way that facilitated my learning, right? Like I felt very unheard. Yeah. Even as, uh, and that was part of the discomfort, right? That like I wanted something that I didn't know that I was getting, but right, um, that there was a sense of all of them were complicit in wanting to explore this topic, but nobody like informed me. Why I am attracted so much to story is because I wanna yield my white story space to the black and brown people with whom I work so that because their stories have been pushed aside. And I, as a white person, have been complicit with that. Even as my practice as a facilitator the yielding unto itself is an action. So I think that it's really, really important to recenter stories that have been pushed away and hidden and not valued on a wider stage. I'm also really interested about facilitators wanting to control the outcome. 
because I know that you have this question about like, how has white supremacy impacted me? Right. And since we're talking about facilitation, that really gets me thinking about how I learned to facilitate. So I, not from the Center for the Theater of the Oppressed, but other people where I took classes and stuff, was like, I learned to facilitate with house rules or like agreements, right? Building a container that's safe. It never felt authentic. And I remember I was doing a workshop with teenagers, with primarily Black teenagers in Philadelphia. And I heard you say something about facilitators wanting to control an outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that I learned when I was young as a facilitator is that I'm supposed to set up house like agreements that everybody gives a thumbs up to at the top of a workshop, like confidentiality, and this is a safe space, and all these things. And I um, was trying to get to the part of the story where I was like, no, this is setting up a structure to make me feel safe. I can't do anything to make people in the workshop feel safe because safety has to also be like a dialogue with yourself and your willingness to step into discomfort and recognize that this disequilibrium has to happen. This um, discomfort has to happen in order for us to learn. And so like, I threw that out. I was like, no, let's, um, I thought about when I go camping and I use these like multifaceted tools to do all these different things. Like I have to choose like, oh, we need to open this. So like I choose this tool and there's that tool. So I started calling them house tools and like not doing agreements or rules or promises. I called them house promises for a while, but tools, it just like appeared to me one day that in a theater of the oppressed workshop, we're here to practice actions for changing how we interact. I'm going to work on curiosity instead of judgment. Like that's a tool. Like I have to make a conscious choice that instead of being reactive, I'm going to be curious about a choice I made. Right. And so like having tools for the theater of the oppressed participants in our workshops creates a um, co-create space because people are actively discovering new ways of interacting. So that has resulted in workshop spaces becoming sort of microcosms for how a group of people really want their lives to be. Yeah, that's uh, one way in which white supremacy has landed in my journey as a facilitator is really revolves around what is it that is happening in this space? <laughs> what does co-creation mean? Because no matter how many times you can ask people to agree to something. So what have you learned about the ways in which you internalize white supremacy in your body? What have you learned? I've learned to not face the really difficult, thorny parts of myself. So as to like, you have to show up as a good white person. Uh, I've learned uh, from white supremacy that mistake making is like a no-no, right? That you, if you don't come out with like the right product, then you might as well just like keep it inside. So even with grant, with like looking at foundations that fund 
this kind of process-oriented work. It's always about how many people did you serve and how many people were sitting in the room and it's, you know, like that kind of measurements. Whereas like this work is about quality, not quantity. It's not how many people have been reached. It's how have people been reached? What are they working on? How has this space of creative play provided an opportunity to grow a better life outside of the workshop space? Perfectionism? My own fear that I don't have a story when I do. And I need to own that story. I can't deny it. I need to learn from it. And I need to be curious about ways in which the various tendrils of those stories continue to raise themselves uh, every day. So what I'm hearing is like, like not enough story. Like there's this not enough story and then it has all these tentacles, right? There's like, there's no story or the story's not good enough. And then there's like us not showing up as good enough, right? And then, and I, I can resonate with this because I, I hold the same perfectionism and feel like, you know, it takes a lot to, for me, living in the world with the perfectionism in the background is sort of like walking a tightrope my whole life. So it feels like walking a tightrope and you never, literally never let to your hair down, which is funny because we're both curly hair. But yeah, we all yeah. <laughs> our hair down all the time, right? Hmm. But it feels like walking on a tightrope. Like that's the best metaphor I can think about about what does it mean to be locked into this perfectionism? I, I'm curious, what metaphor would you choose? Metaphor that I would choose for the what focus is, on perfectionism that comes yeah. with white culture? Yeah. What does it feel uh, like? Uh, skating on thin ice. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh-huh. and I'm curious, does skating on thin ice for you recall just the possibility of falling or literally the possibility of dying in frozen water? Like, is it literally experience of life or death for you? Point in my life, I may have thought it was life and death, but I now have knowledge that it is about falling in. I also know that there are ways to climb out. And that's not a thing that I could say, for example, when I took that workshop and I was what, 22? I think that naming perfectionism, product over process, right? That things have to get done in a certain way, like prevents us from experiencing dissonance, whether that's in our bodies or outside of ourselves. And like dissonance is like really integral to social justice work. What does that mean for the um, who may have not heard that expression? I was doing a workshop one summer for a group of teaching artists. And the scene that the group that I, with whom I was working chose to develop revolved around a young white woman who had a master's degree in art and she was a really gifted artist. She was like subbing for another teaching artist and she didn't have any experience working in a community center. And there were several students who were black and she was white, who were working at the table and she was standing up trying to get them to understand some art technique. And she wasn't getting through and 
what she thought was going to have be a sense of consonance where like everything just lined up and she would like demonstrate the technique and the students would do it and everything would turn out beautiful, right? Instead, she started to experience this sense of dissonance that what she thought she knew is really not what she knew. And she was not able to connect with the students and she was standing above them. So like physically had power over, not just from her social group identity, but physically in the scene using the aesthetics of theater, right? She was positioned up above. And so what happens in a, in a for, it's called form theater. The, the group shared this scene with the audience and the audience has an opportunity to reflect back, to notice what they saw happen and to name the various conflicts that were in play. And then the scene starts up again and any audience member is allowed to say stop and jump in and take the place of the character with whom they most identify. And the actor jumps out, steps out, and the audience member who is now called a spect actor, a spect actor is somebody who is responsible for acting on what they see in terms of conflict. And they jump in and they, the scene starts over, it's improvisation, and they try out a new way of interacting to break the cycle of oppression that the audience member saw exhibited in the scene. And so an audience member jumped in and you jump in and different things happen. And the audience are the ones who come up with what is their vision for the, a new vision for this scenario, for these interactions that would have equity at the heart. And so like the scenes build in dissonance. It doesn't all fit together in the way that one might think, like orally and visually. And what has to happen is like, we have to see that this, that working on interaction is a vital place, an undervalued place of working for social change. Like it's not marching for policy change, which is vital. It's working on what happens beneath the signs, right? And so we invite dissonance into the room and say what you have been socialized as a white person to think is right is really messing things up. Could you give me an example of, an, of a time that you felt dissonance and what it brought to the surface and how you healed it? My own experience. Your own personal work, yeah. Um, that's not within the, to, in December, I'm in residence right now at our, just act as in residence at Arcadia University, and we're working with an ensemble of five students, one faculty member, one staff member. And so mm-hmm. through Zoom, I am teaching them theater of the oppressed and nice. playback theater and other social arts that are designed to make the invisible visible and to work on changing them. And the rehearsals with the students, I've never met any of them, like it's all new. And I was here to do work around racism. The charge, the host invited us in to work with the students around facing race and racism. And in particular, to address racial aggression in the classroom and on the campus. 
And so we're doing this in Zoom. Every time that we had a rehearsal, I would use a different technique based on what had emerged amongst the group to create a space for them to understand that conflict is a place of possibility. You accept it, not to see it always as a place of danger to avoid, but a place of possibility. Because that's, it's in those moments of conflict. You know, that democratic self we were talking about earlier, like, like who always knows what to do? Like, you don't know what to do, right? Accept the unknown and <laughs> see what happens, right? We went through a whole process and they created a forum theater piece that happened on Zoom. And it was about Dr. Misconstrue, who was teaching a history class. Young white girl was a young white woman. We use these names that point forward to the social roles that, that the actors are playing while simultaneously pointing to individual experiences because these are all based on the group's stories, a synthesis. And the stories that were used, the students give permission. Like, it's not like I'm making decisions. The students give permission for the stories to be fictionalized and then changed into what the form is. So misconstrue um, A++ was a young African-American woman in the class. So we have young white girl, A++, and misconstrue. And the scene was Dr. Misconstrue um, closing up Zoom class. So like all the other students left, there were more students. And A plus, and she's talking about a paper that's due and she keeps referring to the topic and, and talking about slavery. She kept saying, don't forget to turn your paper in about the blacks. And A plus plus during class time didn't have space in the Zoom to jump forward and say what she was really feeling. So after class, she, in the Zoom room, approaches Dr. Misconstrue and names the oppression and asks Dr. Misconstrue to, you know, make some change. And Dr. Misconstrue talks her way out of it. And then Zoom class has to end. And then young white girl who's been hanging out off camera comes back on camera and was like saying things like, I really, you know, that must've been really hard for you. Like having to talk to Dr. Misconstrue, like, I'm really sorry. And like, she was like saying all these sort of pacifying things that weren't productive in giving A++ support. So in real life, I would be able to see the audience and I'd be like taking the temperature, like doing a weather check on the energy, on people talking, and there'd be a pair and share and people would exchange ideas and then they would come back and we would do some other things and there'd be some jump-ins and a, there'd be a full room dialogue. Instead, what happens is that suddenly in the chat, there's like a torrent of responses. And I lost my body. I started to get flummoxed at how much information was coming at me, that I didn't know how to handle it, that I was somehow doing everything wrong, and that I was replicating oppression as opposed to opening up a space on Zoom for this group of, this wider group of students, there were 65 people at the Forum Theater piece. My feet were no longer on the ground. 
-hmm. and all of the critics and the defensiveness and that the product was a failure, that it wasn't processed, that all the perfectionism, this like, you know, I just imagined myself completely separate and I didn't know what to do. And there's like all these people with all these ideas. And I was like, oh my God, I said, I don't know, I failed. So I love this moment because I feel like as a facilitator, I've had that experience so many times where it's like, I'm in the moment and I feel like I'm present, I'm present, I'm present. And then suddenly there's a curb. And then it's like, oh my God, am I doing transformative work, which is what I got hired to do? Or am I screwing it up worse? Right. And like, can I handle the curveball? Can I not handle the curveball? Do I trust myself to handle the curveball? Am I handling the? It's just like self-doubt can completely precipitate. And if self-doubt takes over at that point, you're screwed, right? For like the teachers in a room, it's sort of like, you know, your first day of school when the first student challenges you. Like if you buckle, you're gone, you're done. Like you've lost their trust and their respect for the rest of the semester. And really this critical moment because the group is also watching how we handle it, right? And they can feel it just like we can feel them. But because I was in Zoom, Mm -hmm. I couldn't feel them, right? Like I kept saying to myself, oh, if this had only been live, I would be so much better, (laughs) right? You know, it it, um, was exactly as you said, and everybody had an opinion, right? And everybody was saying all these things that young white girls should do. And all I could think of was like, the school is filled with young white girls who think they've done work on themselves, but they haven't. And everybody's like saying all these great things for young white girl to do. And so I piped up, I said, on the Zoom, I said, but that would be magic. If we suddenly had her like be self-aware, then that would be magic in this moment. How can you as a university <laughs> come up with ways to work with young white girls, <laughs> to like lean into what they need to lean into, like that how are they the bull in the china shop, right? Instead of like being safe. And because I couldn't see anyone, I didn't really know if that was like the right thing to say as a facilitator, right? Like- But wait, 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 but see, that's the thing. Is there a right thing? There is no right thing. There is no right thing. And that's why we drive ourselves crazy. We drive ourselves crazy looking for the right thing, but there isn't a right thing. There's just the thing we did and the thing we didn't do. Yep, totally. Yep. That whole sense of like, what is the right thing to do as a white person? We got to work with other white people right now. (laughs) I think that that's like a, a really important place. And Zoom is really... It was such a place of like skating on thin ice, right? And it didn't need to be. I could have just said that without the panic in my heart, right? Mm. If I had just been like I was in the previous 45 minutes in the workshop where I was like in it and I was like really present. If I had just owned what I know instead of suddenly feeling that I wasn't getting it right, as you said then I could have just posed it as a question and embraced whatever happened. 
you know, you're asking how does white supremacy continue to show up to like raise its ugly head? How have you worked to heal that for you and you? And how do we work collectively to continue to heal that? So in this particular, we're talking about white folk because this is our particular sickness, right? But like, how do we work individually? And then how do we work together? I think that what I just articulated could be seen in a, in a different way. It could be seen as let's replace this whole conversation about white fragility with white vulnerability. So how did I heal? I accepted that I got vulnerable and that I didn't have the answer and that my career wasn't over, that it's part of the puzzle. Right? Like, instead of seeing myself suddenly as separate as like, it's not like, it's not working. Recognize that that is part of the work. I became one with the puzzle. Yes, one with the puzzle. And so it's not actually controlling the outcome so that you get this picture perfect package with a bow, right? That looks exactly the way you wanted it to look. What it is, is accepting exactly what is and all the messiness that is and all the messiness that our contribution to it is and saying, look at how this reflects life. Yeah, totally. Martin Luther King Jr. said, all meaningful and lasting change begins on the inside. Say that one more time. All meaningful and lasting change begins on the inside. And so like, I lost touch with my inside. I think that democracy and white supremacy, they are opposites. Because white supremacy reigns, we will never have democracy. So all the posturing that we have a democratic government is so not true. Because white supremacy in the end is still holding the reins of power. As we saw, there's... um. Democracy without awareness is tyranny. I want to take a step back and then come back to democracy because I'm curious to see where you take it. So I have a theory as to why you said you didn't feel your feet. I didn't feel my feet on the ground. They were like pedaling. Right. And I think that's a common, or you use the expression of skating on ice, right? I think... Well, I think for most folks of color have their own pain. So it's okay that they don't get it. That's perfectly fine. But I think it's very hard for folks of color sometimes to understand what it's like to be white and have that level of fear. I have a theory about why that fear is so intense that you literally like either don't feel your body or start shaking and throbbing to the point where it's like out of control. And I think it's because... In white families, social death is very common. And that the way we've been trained to uphold the system is that if we don't, we'll actually lose our families. Because the folks of color I know, generally, even if their parents beat the living crap out of them, know their parents love them. Most of the white people I know don't have that certitude about their parents' love. And I think there's a very primal fear that we walk with that if we go against the grain, we'll die as in not just physically die as an adult, but as a four-year-old who gets 
left in the middle of nowhere with no food and the cold on the ice. That's my theory about why that internalized white supremacy literally feels like we're dying. Like the moment we're not perfect, the moment we're not performing at the top of our category, the moment in which we don't earn the biggest job with the biggest salary and the most prestige, right? Like, and we don't say the perfect thing at the perfect time in the perfect way with the perfect tone of voice and the perfect words. I think this stuff for many people would seem like kind of silly, right? Like perfection in the end isn't life. It is not life or death. But for white folks, it feels like like for death because it feels like we'll be rejected by everyone who loves us if we don't fulfill all those expectations. That's my theory. I'm curious if that resonates for you. Oh, definitely. And I think that it's a lifelong process to expel, right? I think that for me, it's a lifelong process to expel because I did not have support early on to be asking these questions. That's why it's like so important for like my friends who like are pre-K teachers and you know, second grade teachers are talking about race and the construction of race in our country with their little students, right? With the little kids. I didn't have that. I grew up very much like what you just said, right? Like you're gonna hide those less appealing aspects of ourselves so as to have this now I see false sense of belonging. As you said, uphold the system. If we counter it within our family, within our the institution, then somehow we will be pushed out. We won't be accepted. There will be a sense of loss. I'm curious, how does that connect to the democracy piece? I don't know. I'm just curious because it sounds like you, you've been thinking about this democracy and white supremacy piece longer than I have, maybe. I don't know if it's not a competition. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just wondering. I just, no, like, just as a discovery in the moment, is it, right, right. does it connect? I think so, because I think that, and maybe it's not the right expression, that we're like continually ghosted. <laughs> like, no matter how much I work on myself, this still keeps coming up. Like, it's like, it's following me. It's like, it's still like hanging out. And that's a form of tyranny, mm. right? That's like, that prevents me from embracing the disequilibrium that comes with naming invisible complicity. When I was growing up, so white supremacy and patriarchy were matched with anti-Semitism. I internalized many events and no events, but I can honestly say that because of anti-Semitism being as prevalent as white supremacy, that I internalized anti-Semitism and I did everything possible to not be named as one of the Jewish kids because I had internalized that that group of Jewish kids was like all of these things, right? Like kids would drive by their houses and yell obscenities at them. They would like drive on their lawns and turf them. They would like be excluded from parties or they didn't get put into groups with other people, right? And so like at, when, when I was little, I wanted to be Lisa Joe O. Epstein because I have freckles and curly hair. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that this tyranny is like prevents us from being present with the ways in which oppression lives in our bodies and impacts our thoughts, our feelings and our actions. And so it prevents us from embracing these living contradictions. So you see democracy as also the freedom from the inner tyranny, not just from external tyranny. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that if we're just wow. going to focus on the democratic, its structures, policies, yes, and how do we as individuals perpetuate? I think that one of powerful things about Feet of the Oppressed is that it's embodied learning. It's like saying we need to bring to bear all parts, all thoughts, all feelings that emerge all of these parts of the system that live in us and see the way that we're defensive and recognize that that's part of the tyranny of white supremacy, right? So you can't have like democratic government without people who have like done this awareness work and recognition that they are carrying in their feelings. I mean, it starts with interaction, like human interaction, the individual and the interpersonal, right? And then the way in which individuals make systems go. Like if we on our interpersonal, on our individual and then our interpersonal level, begin to shift away from how we've been socialized by white supremacy, and we don't know what it looks like yet, but like if a throng of us, you know, like put equity at the core both our interpersonal relationships, then the institutions that we're running, we won't be afraid to stand up. We won't be afraid of messiness. We won't be afraid of not having the right answer. The right answer is standing up and pointing and naming how we're complicit. That's why I said democracy and white supremacy, like how do you have multi-racial democracy if white supremacy is still the water that we're drinking? Lisa Jo, thank you for this incredible conversation. I love how you have me think and reflect in new ways. You do that systematically and it was a pleasure having you today. Do you have any last thoughts and how can people reach you? Well, I want to thank you, Rita, for inviting me to talk on collective power. And I'm just going to like circle back to that thing I said about throng, right? The collective like once the interpersonal work starts happening, then there's a collective of people who have changed how we interact with each other because we've changed how we feel inside. We change how we interact with each other and then we can grow collective inner power and then impact social power. Ways people can reach me. I am Lisa Jo, L-I-S-A-J-O, at justact.org. Org. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Just Act so people know a little bit more about your organization? Okay, so uh, Just Act is a theater, we call it a theater-based catalyst for healing, change, and activism. And what we do is we use a compendium of applied social arts, theater of the oppressed, Etc. these interactive theater and story-based tools that are designed to be explored by non-actors. And we collaborate across sectors on building the capacity of under-recognized individuals 
and communities who have been systematically discriminated against and those who are in solidarity with them to collectively transform their interactions, to transform where insights come from and insights about seemingly like intractable dilemmas, right? Into positive, hopeful strategies for change. Thank you, Lisa Jo. It was great having you. Take care. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.